short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War Show, episode <laughs> Cold. 10. Sorry. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Hey, all right. How you doing? Good. Okay. Yeah. What's new? Um, It's raining here. It's a lovely warm night. I got a picture of you. Wait, is are we... Re- wait, is this the show? Yeah, this is the show. Oh, okay. No. Was, all right. I'll, let, I'll, I'll edit that out later. Okay. Everything's good. I, no one will know. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Last time on the show, yeah, we started talking about economics, and uh, we, we, we're getting into this story about how money creates incentives for uh, countries to go to war. And um, mm-hmm. we touched on it a little bit. I think I finished last time by quoting from the book "Confessions of an Economic Hitman," where he was Damn. saying, "Yeah, you know, the, the way the, the way it works is." <clears throat> These guys go in to uh, uh, countries, developing countries often, offer them massive loans to to build infrastructure. Uh, in return for those loans, all of the money needs to be spent on U.S. firms to do the building, so the money doesn't actually leave the U.S., right. but the countries still need to pay back the debt and the interest on it. But you try and structure those loans to be so large that they have to default on them, and then you can go in and restructure and right. uh, get access to what he said, we demand our pound of flesh. We say, well, you know, we will forgive the debt or we'll give you more time to pay it back or whatever, we'll restructure that, but we want access to all of these things uh, now right. in addition. And when you I said want- that sometimes mm. you're asked, you, you, you'll take their, literally get them to vote the way you want them to in the United Nations, I'm like, mm-hmm. damn, that's just cold. Mm. They, can't, they don't even have a voice anymore in the United Nations. Just damn. Well, look, there's plenty of examples of um, backroom dealing at the United Nations, if you go and read sure. up on it, of uh, you know the US or, or the UK or, or China or Russia when they're trying to get uh, something passed in the Security Council in particular, or no, the General Assembly, which is where it really matters, uh, going out and you know, negotiating with some of these smaller countries. Well, if you... If you vote with us, we'll give you an aid package or we'll forgive this debt or we'll support you in this civil war or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I want to I start off this episode by talking about uh, one particular instance uh, that I think everyone should know about if they don't already. And uh, that is when the CIA overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran in 1953. Mm. Uh, this is a little bit better known today than it was 15 or 20 years ago. 
Um, I think it got a little bit of a mention in Ben Affleck's film Argo, if anyone right. saw that. That was a good film, solid. Yeah, it was a good film. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. not a bad director at all. Um, but again, it's it's worth covering even if you're familiar with the basics of it because it's a good example of how this works, um, how financial interests are at the core of of uh, some of these uh, foreign policy decisions that get made. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, um, and this is really where the CIA got its start in overthrowing countries. Uh, this was the, the first time they really did it and it was a huge success and mm. they've pretty much been unsuccessful ever since. But <laughs> they started out of the gate, but not <laughs> yeah. since then. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. According to at least Tim Weiner, again, in that book I keep talking about, Legacy of Ashes. Uh, so it goes like this. So um, back in the uh, middle of the 20th century, uh, all of the oil that was being produced out of Iran was controlled by a company known as the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, previously okay. known as the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. Mm-hmm. Um, still around today, this company, um, you may have heard of it. It's called BP. Ah, yes, I have. Mm. Yes, I have. What you may not know is that the brand British Petroleum was originally a German brand. Oh, ah. did not know that. British Petroleum, the brand, was created by a German firm as a way of marketing its products in Britain. <laughs> and then during during World War One, the British government seized all of the company's assets and yeah. uh, sold them to the Anglo-Persian Oil Company in 1917. And so they took control of all of its depots and distribution lines and all that kind Damn. of stuff and changed its name to British Petroleum. But there you go. It was originally German. That's uh, great. Now, what happened with this oil? So way back when, the Brits had done a deal with the corrupt Shah uh, where, they had, where he had pocketed millions in bribes Mm-hmm. in order for the British to get exclusive exclusive control over Persian oil. Ah, gotcha. Now, this was the brainchild of some guy uh, called, I think it's pronounced Winston Churchill. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think, I think he nailed it. I think he got yeah. it. Yeah. He, yeah. He was the first Lord of the Admiralty of the Navy mm-hmm. in uh, the early part of the 20th century and decided right. that they needed to convert their fleet from coal to oil. Mm-hmm. It would give them a strategic advantage. And uh, so he wanted to stitch up a major supply of oil. And so they uh, went to Persia, which yeah. was pretty much under British control at the time was mostly, control at the time was mostly divided between the British and the Russians, and then after the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, the Russians kind of bailed out, so the British had control of it. Nice. Um, Now, decades later, in the 1950s, the early 1950s, when Iran had a democratically elected government, Mm -hmm. uh, this government decided they wanted to renegotiate the... (sighs) financial terms of this oil deal with Britain so more of the money 
more of the profit would stay in Iran and they wanted to improve the working conditions of the people, Iranian people, working on the oil fields. Okay. Um, and the, and so they, you know, they sat down and had a negotiation with the British and the British told them uh, essentially to go fuck themselves. <laughs> so it wasn't going well. No. Um, so... Um, Look, the working conditions were truly, uh, under the British, were truly draconian. Mm-hmm. The director of Iran's Petroleum Institute wrote that wages were 50 cents a day. There was no vacation pay, no sick leave, no disability compensation. The mm-hmm. workers lived in a shanty town called Kazazabad or Paper City without running water or electricity. In mm. winter, the earth flooded and became a flat, perspiring lake. The mud in town was knee-deep, and when the rain subsided, clouds of nipping, small-winged flies rose from the stagnant water to fill the nostrils. Summer was worse. The heat was torrid, sticky and unrelenting, while the wind and sandstorms shipped off the desert hot as a blower. The dwellings of Kagazabad, cobbled from rusted oil drums, hammered flat, turned into sweltering ovens. In every crevice hung the foul, sulfurous stench of burning oil. In Kagazad there was nothing, not a tea shop, not a bath, not a single tree. The tiled reflecting pool and shaded central square that were part of every Iranian town were missing here. The unpaved alleyways were emporiums for rats. Jesus. Now, and I mentioned in the last episode that one of the goals of imperialism was to get access for the the, the capitalist enterprises of imperialist countries to cheap uh, labor and, and natural resources and cheap labor without any sort of labor unions or mm-hmm. working conditions and all that kind of stuff. And this is a classic example of that in the mid 20th century. We're not talking about 1850 here. We're not talking right. about 1750. We're talking about 1950. And some of us were born. Jeez. I mean, they could have doubled their salary to a dollar a day and BP still would have been okay. Now, I think the deal that the Iranians had for the oil was they were getting about 16 cents in the dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of the profit of the oil that was sold. And they they wanted to double it to 32 cents in the dollar. Um, they, you know, they used examples of new oil deals that were being struck in Iraq the um, by, I think, some American interests, Standard Oil or something like that. They were getting 50 cents in the dollar. And they said, so they're saying to the British, look, 36 cents in the dollar is, is a good deal, right? You're still... Right. And the British said, go fuck yourselves. So the Iranians, under their Prime Minister Mossadegh, very popular, very old guy at the time he was in his, I think, late 70s, very popular with the people, had been elected as Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. Um, He decided after a decade they'd been trying to renegotiate with the British that finally enough was enough and uh, they were going to nationalise the oil interests. Because they were a poor country, you know, they'd been occupied, as we know, <laughs> going back to Alexander the Great. Right. Uh, 
uh, pretty much constantly, and they wanted to rebuild their country or build their country, not even rebuild, build their country up. And, uh, you know, people may not know that Iran in the 50s, uh, whilst still obviously Muslim uh, for the large part, was a fairly progressive country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very cosmopolitan. Girl- in sectors, yeah. yeah. Girls were wearing mini skirts. People, mm-hmm. Kids were listening to rock and roll. Um, it was surprisingly modern. But that all changed. Yeah. When, um, again, this guy called Winston Churchill. Churchill, I think is how Ch- you say it. Churchill. 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 Yeah. yeah, I think that's... He's, <clears throat> he, by this stage in 1953, is the Prime Minister once again of uh-huh. uh, the United Kingdom. and uh, But the United Kingdom doesn't have the wherewithal at this stage to effect an overthrow of a government. They've got the... The, the, the ask uh, ripped out of them during World War Two, right? So they uh, so he got the MI six to approach the newly formed CIA under oh. Kermit Roosevelt Jr., grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. Mm, okay, got to talk about that name later on, but okay. Oh yeah, um, to help them overthrow the Iranian government, replace the prime minister with a corrupt general, and give the Shah. Back his uh, previous dictatorial powers. Uh, so <clears throat> this happens. This leads to 25 years of Iranian oppression, supported by the US and the UK under the Shah, which finally ended in 1979 with the White Revolution of the Ayatollah Khomeini, and mm-hmm. led to uh, you know uh, uh, Iran being a th- um, Shia theocracy. But it's it's never been forgotten by the Iranians, um, and that's the reason they hate the United States is because they know the Iranian people know, even if most Americans don't, that uh, the United States overthrew their government and placed them in the hands of the Shah for twenty five years. But the point I want to make is, a the U.S. didn't need to send in an army in this mm-hmm. case. What the CIA did was they spent millions bribing criminals, politicians, uh, corrupt soldiers, the mob, and newspapers to organise a series of riots, which they then blamed on Mossadegh and said that Mossadegh was a secret communist and he was Uh. going to bring about a communist overthrow of Iran, which gave the Shah an excuse to remove Mossadegh. He was actually removed when General Sahidi led tanks up to Mossadegh's house. Oh, God. And uh, forcibly removed him. Mossadegh was arrested, uh, and in December 1953, he was sentenced to death. Mm. He'd done nothing, mind you. Nothing. No, he just except say, the door. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, his crime was that he, after 10 years of failed negotiations to increase the amount of money the Iranians got out of their own oil interests in their own fucking country to improve the working conditions of their people, that they were going to nationalise it. And so he got arrested by tanks. Uh, but his death sentence was later commuted to three years solitary confinement in a military prison, followed by life in prison. And he was kept under house arrest for the rest of his life until he died in 1967. Damn. He was already very old and very ill That's at the time. Um, and if you don't believe me, look it up. It's called Operation Ajax. I've done a couple of yeah. podcasts about it over the years. But here's another thing. There's a lesson to be learned. The CIA denied any involvement 
in mm-hmm. the overthrow of Mossadegh for 60 years. Ah. Nope. We didn't do it. Nope. Nope. I guess, what, does the time limit our Freedom of Information Act, or maybe they want mm. to brag, or they felt it was safe? Mm. Who knows? Yeah. Eventually, the CIA came out and confessed to it. Yeah, okay, yeah, we did do that, after denying it for 60 years. So, Do, do you think if that, we wait long enough and live long enough, we'll find out who killed Kennedy? No. Okay. Oh, and just no, to let everybody know, even though it's a work of fiction, um, there's a James Clavell book called Whirlwind that um, uses th- this very these very series of events as a backdrop for this for that story. And of course, it's James Clavell, so it's an awesome book. But check that out if you uh, you know he's he's pretty historically accurate. Just another way to get your source and enjoy a, information, enjoy a, a good story as well. Mm. What's the noise in the background? Is it rain? Yeah, it's raining pretty hard. So I'll wow. I can hear it, man. It's it's, hit, it's slamming against the window, and the lights have flickered a couple times. So if you hear me Whoa. scream like a not man, <laughs> it's that. But I'll put it on mute, you know, most of the, as much as I can, so you don't hear it. Uh, uh, look, we will cover Operation Ajax in way more detail uh, later on in the series. We'll devote episodes to it, I'm sure. Um, but uh, I think it's a good example of you know, dollar diplomacy and uh, how to take control of a country without having to send in an army. Another one of another instance of dollar diplomacy that I want to talk about briefly now and in a lot more detail later is the Marshall Plan. Mm-hmm. Now, this is probably going to shock a lot of particularly Americans, um, but... You know, well, for people who don't know what the Marshall Plan was, uh, I'm sure most people have heard of it, but they, if the younger kids listening to this may not know what it was in detail. After World War II, the Marshall Plan, uh, so named because of uh, George Marshall, I think he was yep. the, what was his role towards the Chief of was, Staff of uh, Army. Yeah. Um, it was an idea of basically creating large aid packages in the form of loans to a number of European countries to help them recover from the war. They were obviously completely wiped out, destroyed. Right. Uh, they they wanted to rebuild quickly in the US. I think it was something like $13 billion that ended up yeah. being made available. Oh, God. Now, you still there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, right. Is that thunder? Yeah. Holy shit, man. <laughs> I'm scared. I mean, I'm not... Uh, anyway. I should oh, shit. All right. Do me a favor and mute your microphone unless you want to talk because... Uh, All right. That's what it's I'll do. Really, it's coming through loud and clear. Gotcha. Um, so, the Marshall Plan... Um, most people think of it as this great act of altruism where America said, oh, you know, look, we are going to take it upon ourselves to rebuild Europe by giving them all of this money and blah, 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 blah. And, and there's an aspect of that that is true. I'm not saying it was a terribly bad thing that happened, but it's important to understand that it wasn't entirely altruistic. It was right. about economics. If the European countries didn't have any money, they couldn't buy U.S. goods. 
And one of the conditions, a lot of these, what people don't understand is these, uh, the Marshall Plan loans came with a number of pretty important conditions. Uh, they didn't just give them the millions and say, all right, there you go, good luck, God bless, you know, do whatever you want with it, spend it on drugs or whatever. Um, it was like a loan. It's like if, if you've... Uh, if if you've blown all of your money on weed and ecstasy and gambling Woo! and you got yourself into a hole with the mob because you owe the money and your father comes to you and says, look, I will bail you out with this money, but uh, I'm going to have complete control over how you spend it so you can't go and spend it on more drugs, right? Okay. Or on the horses. That was That was the Marshall Plan. So one of the conditions of the loans was that a large percentage of the funds had to be spent on U.S. goods and services. That's tacky. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. On one hand, you could say, well, there was no one else that had goods and services <laughs> at the end of World War II, so right. where else were they going to spend it, really? <clears throat> but, well, I, um, yeah. I just want to say real quick, uh, yeah, as far as the Marshall Plan, I, I heard, I read a book a long time ago. They, in some ways, it was almost compared to the space race. Here's some money. Yeah, like you're right. There's not, who else is selling in town? Who's got the goods? The only other people who've possibly got goods is the USSR, USSR. And if you get mixed up with them, then you're going down a slippery slope. So America's like, buy from us and don't buy from them. And we got to get in there first, take our money so you're beholden to us. So in some ways, it was almost like, the arms race, the space race, it was just dealing with money after the war. Yeah. I don't understand any of what you just said, but um, sure. If it makes okay. sense to you, that's that's the important it thing. It made sense in the book, yeah. <laughs> well, they all had to worry about you know the fear of communism and everybody's destitute and starving and they're looking for answers and they're looking for someone to take care of them or, the, or to care. You know, Soviet Russia is right there on the same continent as them. And so America had to get in there as quickly as they could with their troops and their money to stake out as much territory as they possibly could. Yes. Yeah, you're right. And, and the Marshall Plan will end up being one of the primary factors that leads to the Cold War. Um, but you're right. One of the justifications for it was to stop these countries of Europe um, developing closer relations with the USSR economic relations. But from the U.S. perspective, so they loaned them the money, but as I said, a large percentage of the funds had to be spent on U.S. goods. So like uh, we saw with the economic hitman example, and a lot of the money never even left U.S. shores. It was just provided as a credit to these countries where that they then spent on U.S. goods. So again, the money went from uh, a, a bank in Washington to a bank in New York. <laughs> uh, you know, now... The, the the interesting thing with this is, and we'll get into this as we go, is where did that money come from? And it's 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 basically a transfer of wealth uh, from one group of holders to another group of holders. Um, the, the the other con the other condition that I wanted to talk about about the Marshall Plan was uh, that one of there was that the the European countries that were the recipients of the money had to end their protectionist economic policies, mm. trade tariffs, etc. cetera. Uh, right. We're going to get into tariffs and protectionism uh, a little bit more over the next episode or two. But this, this meant that the U.S. could break into previously off-limit markets. If you don't understand much about how trade tariffs or protectionism works, 
Uh, we will cover that, as I said, as we go in the next couple of episodes in a lot more detail. So the point I wanted to make here is just that this propaganda that I think a lot of Americans believe that the Marshall Plan was entirely altruistic. Right. I got into, a, got into an argument with Markham about this in Vegas in January. Um, it's bullshit, right? And that's not saying it was a bad thing. But right. it's saying that it wasn't an entirely altruistic thing. It was like, well, we will loan you this money, but you need to spend it with us. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, but that's also true, by the way, with a lot of aid, uh, you know, uh, foreign aid. Right. Whenever you hear of the US or Australia or the UK providing foreign aid to some country, it usually comes with some pretty, pretty, pretty interesting conditions. Yeah. And again, it doesn't make America evil. America was trying to help at the same time to deflect the Soviet Union, but at the same time take care of their own. Because like like you've uh, been saying, I think it was in the previous episode, America, you know, we, we can produce so much between our population and the resources we have and the energy we have. We can produce more than we can possibly consume. We need someone else to buy it. So America was helping themselves while they were helping the, these other people. So it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a little bit of both. I just have to bring this up real quick. Actually, this morning, going into work, um, the Red Cross is being investigated. Actually, they've been investigated for years about all the money that they raised for Haiti. At yeah, I read Re- that. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. Now you can't even trust. And I don't want to tell people what to do with their lives or with their money. But now you feel like you can't even trust the Red fucking Cross. It's like, here's a special fund just for Haiti. All of your money will go to it, or the vast majority of your money will go to it. And now the Red Cross can't even tell the government where all the money's at or where it went to. It's like, you, you just you just get downhearted sometimes. Just like, I cannot trust anybody with anything. And that's just a sad state of affairs. Mm. Not to mention the Clinton Foundation's uh, yeah. money they raised for Haiti too. What happened to that? Oops. Um, the other example that I wanted to use is uh, East Timor, something that Americans may not be familiar with, but Australians will. East Timor is a little island that was occupied by Indonesia for a very long time. <clears throat> and then um, there was uh, the UN basically forced uh, Indonesia to give East Timor its independence. There'd been a lot of violence and brutality by the Indonesians in East Timor for mm-hmm. decades since their invasion. In the mid-70s, that was uh, actually supported by Australia and the United States. <clears throat> but then a few decades later, we go, oh, now we want to support their freedom. But there was a, there was still a lot of violence uh, in during this sort of um, independence process. And the Australian government took the lead uh, in sending a, an international peacekeeping force over there to restore order for mm-hmm. a few years. This is in the the late 90s, the early 2000s. Funnily enough, after the new government under Jose Ramos Horta was um, uh, in place, uh, or first under Guzmao, then under Horta, um, Australia was given uh, the rights to mine, I think, natural gas off the coast of East Timor. Nice. Yeah. 
So it was like we send in an army and then like a week later we uh, get the rights to my, my gas. No, that's so, just a coincidence. That's a coincidence. Yeah, possibly it is. Possibly, but possibly <laughs> also not. Not. Um, being a skeptic, I look for things like that and go, oh, interesting timing there. Interesting timing. I wonder what went on behind the scenes. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Uh, we talked about Operation Ajax, the Marshall Plan, well, which is, we'll talk about a lot of those more in more detail later on. Now, as we've said before in the series, in the early 20th century, the US economy was facing very significant difficulties. Mm-hmm. Now, people may not believe that. I've had emails from a couple of people saying, that's not true. The 20s, boom times. Yeah, boom times for some people uh, through speculation, not boom times for the most. And also, just go and Google list of U.S. economic depressions. And you'll see that the U.S. economy had been suffering through depressions every couple of years, every two, three years since the 1890s, Mm. right up until World War II. And in fact, after World War Two as well, one of the after World War Two there was a recession. I think sort of forty seven ish, and uh, guess what pulled the U.S. out of it? Uh, another war, uh, the Marshall Plan. Oh, good. I'm glad that worked for us too. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let me quote Leslie M. Shaw. Mm-hmm. Leslie M. Shaw was the Secretary of the United States Treasury under President Theodore Roosevelt. And he delivered a lecture to students and faculty of Chicago University on March 1st, 1907. And he said, The time is coming when the manufactories will outgrow the country and men by the hundred of thousands will be turned out of the factory. The factories are multiplying faster than our trade. And we will shortly have a surplus with no one abroad to buy and no one at home to absorb because the labourer has not been paid enough to buy back what he has created. Mm. The last century was the worst in the world's history for wars. Talking about the 19th century there. I, I look to see this century bring out the greatest conflict ever waged in the world. Uh, he's a bit of a prophet, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> here's, the, here's the kicker line, though, and I want everyone to remember that this is the Secretary of the Treasury, and he said, it will be a war for markets and all the nations of the world will be in the fight as they are all after the same markets to dispose of the surplus of their factories. Mm. So wars cost money but then you might have to have war so you can make money. I think my eyes just crossed. Takes money to make money, my That's friend. Right. <laughs> Takes yeah. war to make cheese. Now, again, again, this isn't fucking Chomsky I'm quoting here or Lenin or Marx. Right. It was the Secretary of the Treasury under Teddy Roosevelt. Mm. He said the 20th century would bring the greatest conflict the world had ever seen. It would be a war for markets and all the nations of the world will be in the fight as they are all after the same markets to dispose of the surplus of their factories. So we had the Industrial Revolution had gotten to a point where these factories were producing a great surplus, 
more than they could sell domestically at home, they needed to sell them offshore, and there was a war for those markets. Right. Dean Acheson, um, who was the Secretary of State under Truman, uh, who was the architect of the Marshall Plan, and in many ways the architect of the Cold War, said himself in 1944, it seems clear that we are in for a very bad time so far as the economic and social position of the country is concerned. We cannot go through another 10 years like the 10 years at the end of the 20s and the beginning of the 30s without having the most far-reaching consequences upon our economic and social system. When we look at that problem, we may say it is a problem of markets. You don't have a problem of production. The United States has unlimited creative energy. The important thing is markets. We have got to see that what the country produces is used and is sold under financial arrangements which make its production possible. You must look to foreign markets. Damn. So we're just too damn good. No, no, but seriously, with, with technology and with everything we have, we can produce far more than we could possibly consume. Someone's got to buy this shit, or we're going to be looking at another recession. What are we going to do about it? If you can't sell it, then you have to stop making it. If you have to stop making it, you have to lay people off. If you lay people off, we know what happens then. So, exactly. yeah, and again, so I'm trying to paint a picture here for people about the importance to American leaders, political uh, and, and business leaders in the early 20th century, of keeping America's foreign trade humming along. Very, very important. It's all about trade and markets. This, this might be a stupid question, but ju- just to, I mean, because this country is so large, we have such a large population and a lot of people are working, I guess the, the problem would have been the same if the country had been, say, one-fourth the size that it currently is, but you're still, once you're a developed nation and you're industrialized and, and you have, you know, all the energy you need and you've got, you know, educated workers, you're still at some point going to produce way more than you could possibly consume. It's just that we have the ability, because of our size and population, to, I don't know how to put this a nice way, push people around. As, as opposed to if we were just si- the size of Texas or something like that. But just the fact that we've had this problem and other industrialized nations have it as well. But because we are so big and because we are so populous, it seems to be a more intensive problem for us just because we can make so much so quickly. Someone's got to buy all this stuff. Yeah, and one of the um, things that America had uh, has in its favor is very large country, very diverse country with lots of access to natural resources. Mm-hmm. If you compare that to the United Kingdom or to Japan or to Germany, these countries don't have a lot of natural resources. Right. So their ability to produce is limited on their ability to import natural resources. And, and they're also fairly small in terms of uh, uh, geographic real estate, right? So there's right. a limitation on... Uh, how many factories or how many mines you can have or how many forests you can have for timber when you're a relatively small geographic country. Yeah. Um, 
or how much desert you have, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, the, the United States um, has uh, not only a lot of real estate, but a lot of it is productive in various ways. Mm-hmm. So, the key points here are the US needed foreign markets to sell their surplus goods and also to provide natural resources. If they couldn't sell their surplus overseas, the country would go into a recession. At least that was the fear of the the political and business leaders. Now, way back at the start of the 20th century, as we saw again in the FDR-Churchill chats for the Atlantic Charter, these markets were locked up, these foreign markets were locked up by trading blocks by the great imperialist powers. It wasn't that the US didn't have any access to selling to the British Commonwealth or, you know, the the USS, sorry, the czarist Russia's empire or these countries, but it wasn't free trade. There were limitations. There were tariffs. There were protectionist mechanisms that made it more difficult and more expensive for American businesses to sell into those markets than it did for members of those respective empires. So American businesses were at a disadvantage from the get-go. And um, there's a great, another great book I want to recommend called The Tragedy of American Diplomacy, written by William Appleman Williams, the funniest name ever, <laughs> Billy Apples, his friends used to call him. Um, one of the most influential books written on American foreign policy, uh, Appleman Williams was uh, the president of the Organization of American Historians in 1980. He was um, a professor first at Wisconsin and then somewhere else, I can't remember where. But um, he, in this book, The Tragedy of American Diplomacy, he wrote about the idea of the open-door policy. You familiar with that, Ray? Sure, uh, sure. It's an altruistic, Christian-based idea about everybody should have equal and open access to the markets of another country where everybody plays fair, above board, and they sing kumbaya, and they shake hands, and they're like, good luck, champ. But I could be slightly wrong in that. Cutthroat business. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, thank you for that insight. Uh, in this book, he talks about how the U.S. Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, wrote that Woodrow Wilson explained to him that the basic uh, basic objective of the open-door policy was to open the doors of all the weaker countries to an invasion of American capital and enterprise. No, no, no. I think what you meant to say was uh, to American values because we do have that shining city on the hill. I think you read that wrong. Yeah, could be me. Um, (laughs) By the way, William Jennings Bryan is also the first person who coined the term guns versus butter. In his resignation speech, when he was sort of annoyed at uh, them getting involved in um, World War One, uh, guns and butter is basically the idea that we'll talk about a lot over the course of the series. I'm sure it's the idea that a country can either spend its money on armaments or on taking care of its people, which is the butter component of it. Right. Um, if you have a limited amount of money in the budget, you can spend it on one of those things or the other. And uh, he was arguing that we should be spending our money on taking care of our people, not on guns. But back to the open door policy. So 
It was first mentioned in regards to China in the early part of the 20th century. The idea that the US wanted China to remain open to trade with all countries on an equal basis rather than any one power from having total control of the country. China in the early 20th century was seen as the great new market which was opening up. Uh, And at the time it faced imminent threats from a variety of colonial powers, Britain, France, Russia, Japan, Germany, that all wanted to get in there and partition it or colonise various components of it. And, you know, the concern from the US's perspective, and again, we have to remember that the US in the early part of the 20th century was an isolationist country right, and didn't have much of a military to speak of, navy or army. Yeah, but there is one interesting part where the America and, uh, excuse me, America and Russia is going to clash because um, with all these countries coming into China, trying to carve it up, take whatever they want, obviously no one's asking China what do they want. Do they want to be a part of this? Spoiler alert, they do not. But anyway, so, you know, as vast as China is, a lot of the business as far as the United States was concerned, they were selling their goods in Manchuria in northeast China. And even though that... um, America's trade with China was like less than 1% of all of our exports in 1904. 90% of what we did send to China was going to Manchuria. So that that area is very important to us. And during this time, as you you know, through the different... uh, uh, different wars and um, and clashes. Russia was trying to tighten its grip on the area of Manchuria, which America did not appreciate. And again, they weren't concerned about the Chinese. They were just concerned about their markets. But then again, the U.S. started off really well in 1880s, selling to China. But then things uh, hit a snag. In 1882, the U.S. made up a law barring Chinese laborers from coming to the United States to you know because they were taking. American jobs. And so the Chinese back in Manchuria started um, boycotting American products. So so the tensions rising, you know, we had a pretty decent attitude towards Manchuria as long as they were as long as they were buying from us. But as soon as they stopped doing that, that we don't give up what happens to them, who takes them over. And just to give you an idea of the attitude, and this is like, you know, fairly racy language. Let's see here. John Hay, Secretary of State for, again, Teddy Roosevelt, who he said, we have done the chinks a great service, which they do not seem inclined to recognize by, by selling them our goods and bringing them our American values and products and our way of lives. And uh, he was basically um, saying that America slowly figured out that the Chinese they wanted American goods, but they did not have the purchasing power to keep this going, and they didn't have the infrastructure. And so uh, as much as the Americans were excited to sell to them, eventually those in China just ran out of money. They couldn't afford to keep uh, buying what America was produced, so that starts to shrink down. America loses interest. We don't care what happens to them anymore, but by the 1920s, we're so involved with them politically, we do have to keep an idea of what's going on, and that's when we send in General Stilwell, which is a whole another story. But the point is, when they were buying from uh, for us, from us, we loved them. We were concerned about them. As soon as they stopped buying from us, for whatever reason, they can go hang, and we don't care anymore. But that's the way business works. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to stop for a second and just uh, make a note of the fact in the official record of the series that Ray did some work. He uh, there, there was quite obviously some preparation that went into that. Um, and, Thank you. Uh, he bowing, had notes. You can't see it. Yeah, 
he had notes. He wasn't just going, yeah, yeah, no, that's yeah. great, yeah. Hey, I have notes wow. where I say yeah, yeah, and write. That's written <laughs> down. That shit's wow. pre-planned. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Nice, nice, nice work, Ray. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. You. Thank wow. you. Wow. I think our, like, I think our, like, no, our heat, our air conditioning went out. Shit. I'm sweating. Oh, okay, I'm going to do the rest of this naked. You keep talking. I'm going to put it on mute, and i got to take some stuff off. Go ahead. I'm surprised you had clothes on to start with. And you think I'm joking. Go ahead. <laughs> so the open door policy, as I said, uh, started with China. The Americans were scared that it was going to be uh, controlled by a bunch of imperialist powers and they wouldn't have access to it. Um, and, you know, this actually becomes the founding principle then of American foreign policy in the 20th century. Open door policy combined with the Monroe Doctrine are really the two key pillars of American foreign policy. Now, at the same time, uh, just after the Bolshevik Revolution, the, the Soviets, the Bolsheviks, had nationalised industry and established a foreign trade monopoly. So Bolshevik policy, as we will, you know, I think we touched upon briefly when we were doing the Stalin episode, and we will probably talk about more, but, uh, you know, Russia was a backwards country, uh, when the Bolsheviks took over, uh, in terms of uh, their ability to to produce and feed themselves and their their mm-hmm. um, industrialization, and the the policy of the Bolsheviks was to pull the country into twentieth century by keeping most of all most or all of their products inside their own country and keeping their cash inside it too. So there was no foreign trade or at least limited foreign trade closely uh, governed by the government. And there are various periods where they open it up a little bit, then they shut it down again. But basically they cut off the Russian and Soviet uh, markets to American and British businesses. And so obviously the American and the British didn't like that either. Right. Now, they all wanted free trade. America talks these days about free trade. We always hear our governments talking about free trade. And I want to talk a little bit about free trade because it's it sounds like a worthy ideal. Everyone likes things that are free. We yeah. go free. Oh, free is good, right? Well, I just got to say, growing up in, as a kid in, in, you know, in, the, uh, in the 80s or whatever, I mean, we had it pounded into us by the news and Reaganism, stuff like that. Nationalism or nationalizing something is bad because you're taking away freedom and choices. Whereas if you have free markets, that's all good because free markets means everybody gets to choose what they want and, and that's what's best, right? But of course, as you're about to tell everybody, that is not exactly what freedom free markets mean. So to quote Yoda, you must unlearn what you have learned. <laughs> the philosopher Yoda. Free trade sounds like a good thing. And there are, some, there are definitely some good things uh, within free trade. But it's important to know that free trade tends to benefit developed economies and threaten weaker ones. Trade restrictions usually exist to support domestic industry from foreign competition. So what that means is if you have a country that is um, trying to to build itself up economically, let's say we take Russia or the USSR in the early 20th century, undeveloped industry, they want to develop it. It's hard to develop your domestic industry 
like uh, improve your farming uh, technique, the strength of your farmers, the strength of your factories, you know, build up their production capability, train their workers, all of that kind of stuff. If more advanced economies or businesses from more advanced economies are coming into your country and selling their goods, they're selling their cars into your economy cheaper than your own uh, car uh, auto factories are able to right. sell their cars, right? Because they have more advanced technology or whatever it is. Um, or they're coming in and using all of their cash to buy up the resources. If, if, if um, uh, Again, using Russia as an example in the early 20th century, if American uh, capitalists, your Rockefellers and your JP Morgans come in and they use their wealth to buy up all of the tin or all of the copper or all of the gold or all of the steel factories and then, uh, you know, regulate the pricing of those, they can make it difficult for your domestic industries to build up. Not all countries of the world, obviously, have Mm. gone through the Industrial Revolution and capitalism, uh, socioeconomic development at the same pace over the last couple of hundred years. So some are more advanced than others. And, of course, the advanced... Nations want to take advantages of the um, undeveloped nations. So these are the reasons why economic tariffs, uh, trade tariffs and protectionist uh, measures tend to exist in countries. It's, it's to give your own farmers and businesses, factories, etc., um, advantages so they can build themselves up or stay prosperous uh, and and um, because they, it's felt that they can't compete for a variety of reasons uh, on their own merits against foreign competition. Now, <clears throat> it's important to understand that even though countries like the US and the UK and Australia, developed countries today, might crow on about f- free trade and free markets and what a wonderful thing it is, that they tightly controlled their own markets for centuries until they were strong enough to be able to compete globally. For well over a century, the US federal government was largely financed by tariffs, which averaged about 20% on foreign imports across the board. Talking about the vast majority of the US government's Budget, annual budget came from trade protectionist measures, tariffs, etc. You know, even today, tariffs are an important mechanism used by the US to protect their own markets while at the same time complaining when other countries do the same thing. (laughs) And pushing through things like the TPP and and, and NAFTA under Clinton, etc., You know, it was only a couple of years ago that the US Congress was complaining about China's protectionist policies. I think at the time China had a 105% tariff on US poultry coming into China. Mm. But at the same time, uh, America even today has tariffs on over 12,000 specific items, according to the International Trade Commission. Uh, the U.S. still has very high tariffs on things like dairy and vegetable imports, woolen clothing, auto parts, mm-hmm. canned tuna, Chinese tires, leather shoes, sneakers, 
European meats and truffles, French chocolate, peanuts, tobacco. The list is very, very long. It's not French chocolate. It's freedom chocolate once it comes over here. (laughs) Okay. The U.S. recently imposed a 266% duty on Chinese steel imports because American steelmakers are struggling to compete with Uh. the Chinese. Chinese steel prices tend to be 20 to 50% lower than American steel prices. So Mm. if you're an American business, you you, you know, construction company, you want to buy steel. uh, If you buy it from China, you get a massive discount. So you're going to buy it from China because we believe in free markets, right? No, not so much. (laughs) So so then they put 266% duty on Chinese steel imports. So remember this when you hear politicians talking about how wonderful free trade agreements are. They help advanced economies and hurt developing economies. And sometimes they even hurt the advanced economies. The US has lost 700,000 manufacturing jobs since NAFTA was brought in under Bill Clinton. Now, I have to ask, wasn't that done with partnership between Bill Clinton and Republicans, who are supposedly the pro-business party. So yeah. why do we lose so many jobs if it was supposedly a good thing by these wise, business-minded politicians? Oh, because the jobs went to Mexico and to China, uh, yeah. where you can get the labor done at a fraction of the price without any troublesome media or unions looking over your shoulder. And uh, the, the guys who run the business make more money. It's bad so it, for the worker, right. good for the business owner. So it benefits the 1%, the people that own the mm-hmm. means of production. Mm-hmm. Fucking Marx was right. Anyway, yeah, okay. man. Yeah. yeah, okay. You should get that on a T-shirt. Fucking <laughs> Marx was right. <laughs> so remember in an earlier episode, uh, we were talking about FDR telling Churchill that the US wanted to break up the British Empire's trading block in return for the U.S. getting involved in World War II. Mm. Mm. I want to look at how innocent the U.S. was in regards to trading blocks. You you know, it sounds very noble. Yes. From this day forth, there shall be no more... Yeah. FDR on a white horse, motherfucker. Woo! Pure snow. On a unicorn (laughs) shooting rainbows out of his hands and his ass. Yeah. (laughs) Now, <clears throat> some people, again, they may not know or they may have heard about this somewhere along the line, but just as a reminder, mm-hmm. you know, the U.S. had opposed Haitian Revolution for independence from France at the start of the 19th century. Uh, it had instigated a war with Mexico and taken half of the country. Yeah, we did that. It uh, pretended to help Cuba win freedom from Spain and then planted itself in Cuba with a military base, which is still there, investments and uh, rights of intervention and then supported, you know, uh, brutal dictatorships over Cuba for Mm. uh, 50 years. It sent troops to Peking with other Western nations to assert Western supremacy in China and kept them there for over 30 years. Uh, While demanding an open-door policy in China, it used the Monroe Doctrine to uh, engineer a closed door in Latin America, (laughs) closed to everyone except the United States. Hell yeah. 
We believe in open door policies, but uh, don't think you're going to trade with Latin America, motherfuckers. That's our backyard. We believe in open policies here, here, and here, not over here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it engineered a revolution uh, against Colombia and created the independent state of Panama in order to build and control the Panama Canal. It sent 5,000 Marines to Nicaragua in 1926 to counter a revolution and kept the troops there for eight years. It uh, intervened in the Dominican Republic for the fourth time in 1916 and again kept troops there for eight years. It intervened for a second time in Haiti in 1915 and kept troops there for 19 years. Mm. Between 1900 and 1933, the U.S. intervened in Cuba four times, in Nicaragua twice, in Panama six times, in Guatemala once, and in Honduras seven times. So what you're saying is, if Robert De Niro was here right now, he'd be like, we've done some things. That's what? all I'm saying. What? We, we've done some what's, things. What's that got to do with Robert De Niro? No, no, there was... Never mind, fuck it. I'm, I thought you were going to go, are you looking at me? <laughs> no, I'm the only no. one here. Are you looking at me? No, he was like, like, done some Saturday things? Night Live. He was like, I heard some things. I heard some things. So, America, we've done some things. Wow. I admit it. Yeah. I was really you know, reaching... I, I you're going to go for a De Niro quote and you pull out something he did on SNL. <laughs> Not one of the, you know, classic Scorsese films that he's been in. Look, all I'm wearing is my Fitbit... And my earphones. I'm hot. I'm sweaty. Semi turning myself on. <laughs> drinking my limoncello. Yeah. Oh, okay. Anyway, I might just take a picture and send it to you. But anyway, by 1924, the finances of half of the 20 Latin American states were being directed to some extent by the United States. Hell yeah. So sometimes what you're saying is you don't even have to go and invade. You can just go in and control uh, what their resources in their economy and the rest of it falls into place. So well, you know, they did. They did invade Latin well, America. Yeah, yeah. You sent you sent troops over there, yeah, and but, over again, directly oh or indirectly. God. Yeah. And they still are. There are still, yeah. uh, you know, Haiti, things happening in Haiti, things happening in Honduras, Guatemala. Um, yeah. There, there, there are political revolutions that the U.S. are either confirmed to be or suspected to be behind the scenes controlling. But anyway. Um, and we'll talk about a lot of these later on in the series. We're going to get into a lot of the post-World War II, Cold War interventions in Latin America in great detail. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the Cuban Revolution in great detail. But for right now, I just want to do big brush stuff. By 1935, over half of U.S. steel and cotton exports were being sold into Latin America. Damn. So the mm. so United States had massive financial interest in this part of the world. Now, a State Department memorandum on Japanese expansion a year before Pearl Harbor. Remember, this is when Japan was making its way into Manchuria, mm-hmm. uh, trying to take control of China. Right. And I'll talk about the reasons why in a minute. Uh, This State Department memorandum didn't talk about the independence of China or the principle of (laughs) self-determination. No. No, it said, Our general diplomatic and strategic position would be considerably weakened by our loss of Chinese, Indian and South Seas markets 
and by our loss of much of the Japanese market for our goods as Japan would become more and more self-sufficient, as well as by insurmountable restrictions upon our access to the rubber, tin, jute and other vital materials of the Asian and Oceanic regions. Mm. And the, the only thing I wanted to add to that was, uh, you know, obviously you need rubber for making weapons and stuff like that. Um, and so when we got, when we lost access to all that, we had to take and, and synthetic rubber already existed, but we improved upon it in 1940. There was a scientist, Waldo Simon who worked for BF Goodrich and he was able to make up a new, better, cheaper version of synthetic rubber. And of course it was called Ameripole. Woo. So yeah. So again, you lose out these markets and they literally were so desperate. They had to create or improve upon synthetic rubber to be ready to, you know, to go into the war to get more markets. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just amazing. You wish you could uh, make synthetic everything else. You wouldn't have to go into war but that uh, to other markets, but that's not the way it is. And I think we should go back to the very beginning of the show and say, this episode is brought to you by the word markets. Markets make the world go round. I thought you could say it's brought to you by Meripol. <laughs> Only if they were paying me. Only if they were paying me. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so... We, if you ask the average person, the average American, why did uh, America end up in a war with Japan uh, in World War Two? They'll talk about Pearl Harbor, but as we've Hell mentioned yeah. before, there's a lot of history <laughs> right? Uh, in terms of economic warfare that led up to Pearl Harbor in the first place. Um, it, uh, so, and, and in fact, economics and markets and trade had a lot to do with World War II, I think I mentioned this at the beginning of this episode or the last episode, somewhere in the last few hours. If you ask most people what led to World War II, I think the majority of them wouldn't say it was about economics. But really, economics drive a lot of these things. And, um, you know, I don't want to run foul of the Martin Darlington rule here by assuming everyone knows everything, knows anything or has read a fucking book. But... <laughs> Of course, after World War One, the Germans were handed extremely heavy economic penalties under the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah, I we, looked that up. It was like they owed $31 billion, which is like $442 billion in today's money. How in hell are they supposed to come back or do anything owing that type of money? Yeah. That amount of money. So, so they were crippled, and then you had the Wall Street crash of 1929, which affected the world, global economies, a bit like the 2008 global financial crisis. And particularly Germany, Japan and Italy were affected greatly as a result of the Depression. Um, so World War II was in part a war between those countries, Germany, Japan and Italy, trying to arrest their economic decline. Mm-hmm. And their allies trying to stop them because in in doing so, in trying to you know, arrest their economic decline, they're actually threatening the allies' own economic interests. Right. Zero-sum game. Yep. Exactly. You know, in Germany at the time, in, in 1932, 30% of the workforce was unemployed. Uh, industrial output was halved. Germany, though, I'm not sure people understand this, Germany has always been relatively poor in natural resources. Mm -hmm. Even today, almost a third of Germany is covered by forest. And they've always had to import huge quantities of 
raw materials and foodstuffs, and they pay for those by exporting things that they make, usually with the raw materials that they import. That's why you know, uh, uh, both Japan and Germany have been known as the great manufacturing centres, right, in right. the last 50 years. Skilled labour, oh, yeah. Oh, it's German engineering. Well, it must be good. Oh, it's Japanese technology. It must be good. Right. That's because that's what that's all they could do because they didn't have natural resources. So all of their efforts went into being able to build cars and Walkmans. Uh, but they had to import import the raw materials to do that. And it's hard to import stuff if you don't have any money right. because of massive reparations of World War II and because there's a global depression. And also, if you look at Germany in uh, the 30s, during the global depression, the Great Depression, they were looking at what happened to Russia in 1918, Bolshevik Revolution, when mm-hmm. the people got fed up. And they're, they're desperately concerned. The, the ruling elite of Germany, desperately concerned about uh, socialism, Marxism, communism in their own country. Of course, Germany was the centre of Marxism. Marx was a fucking German, even though he lived right. in London. And right. everyone, including Lenin, uh, expected socialism to uh, rise up Germany first of all places it wasn't no one thought it would start in Russia it was supposed to start right. in Germany that was the center the global center of socialism now socialists obviously want to overthrow the wealthy elite which is why the wealthy elite of Germany threw their lot in with Hitler because he yeah. said he would crush the the communists they were literally um, thought they were hiring him we'll hire him he'll take care of it everything will be fine then we'll get rid of him later on when we don't need him anymore. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's important for people to understand that as a consequence of a number of these things, again, the Treaty of Versailles, massive insane reparations, then followed quite quickly afterwards by the uh, depression, global depression, that uh, Hitler decided to, in order to arrest the economic decline of Germany, he needed to annex other countries and expand their economic base. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, he could justify that by saying, well, that's what the United Kingdom's been doing. That's what the United States has been doing. The United States mm-hmm. has taken all of Latin America and Mexico and it's, you know, expanded west and took all of the Indians' territory. If they right. can do it, why can't we do it? At the same time, Japan, and for very similar reasons, Japan invaded China. Now, again, keep in mind that it's Japan is a series of very small islands they don't have access to a lot of natural resources mm-hmm. uh, they need to go and find access to these resources in other places particularly if they can't afford to buy them uh, they need to go and take them that was their yeah. thinking anyway and again it's it, it, this is justified by the fact that everyone else has been doing it as well exactly so if everyone else can do it if the UK and the USA can just go and do it why can't Germany do it? Why can't Japan do it? Why can't Italy do it? Um, On October 19th, 1939, the American ambassador to Japan, Joseph C. Grew, G-R-E-W, who will uh, show up a lot in later episodes because he was a major player uh, in Yalta and Potsdam and uh, the A-bomb, Hiroshima, He gave a formal address to the America-Japan Society. So this is 1939. When did America go to war with Japan, Right, Yeah, December 41. 
Right, so two years before that. Mm-hmm. In this speech to the American Japan Society, Groot said, the new order in East Asia has appeared to include, among other things, depriving Americans of their long-established rights in China, mm-hmm. and to this the American people are opposed. American rights and interests in China are being impaired or destroyed by the policies and actions of the Japanese authorities in China. So you can see that two years before Pearl Harbor, America was worried about their rights and interests in China. Yeah. At the same time, Italy under Mussolini invaded Ethiopia, which is in Africa for people that have never seen an atlas, to expand the Italian (laughs) empire for very similar reasons. Uh, oh, I, I do want to add something real quick. When you were talking about Japan, after um, after Germany took Poland, there were literally posters scattered throughout Tokyo that said, don't miss the bus. You know, this is our opportunity. Again, just like you said, everybody else has done it. In fact, Germany and Italy are doing it right now. Don't miss the bus. Don't miss this opportunity. If there's something we need, go out there and take it. And the big guy wins and the little guy loses, and that's just the way it is. Let's seize this moment while we can. Unfortunately, they went a little too far. But again, they were just doing what everybody else had done um, up until that moment and literally uh, until that moment. And so you can't just say, when I do it, it's okay. When you do it, it's evil and bad. Exactly. When we do it, it is good by the very nature of the fact that we are the ones doing it. Yes. It's the old Nixon thing. (laughs) Uh, when he had his interview with David Frost, if if the president does it, then it, it then it must be legal. <laughs> I'm going to try the next time I get pulled over. Well, yeah. actually, officer, yeah, you're not the president though. So, what's your <laughs> argument going to be? Just I'm me. I'm special. Right, special in a short bus <laughs> kind of way. Or... <laughs> anyway, so when Germany, Japan, and Italy started. Uh, annexing these countries, their goods, their, their, the products of their countries were boycotted by the major economies. And uh, so that hurt their economy even further because mm-hmm. they couldn't sell to the US, UK, etc. And also financial credits, aka dollar diplomacy, were offered to countries in Southern Europe to win them away from dependence on German goods as well. And, you know, the more successful this economic warfare was, the more desperate the economic position of German capitalists became. And, mm-hmm. you know, force appeared to be the only way forwards. Their economy was in dire straits. So the annexation of Austria in 1938 and Czechoslovakia in 39 were all part of basically trying to arrest the economic decline of Germany. Adam Tooze, who's a British historian, T-O-O-Z-E, if you want to look up his book, The Wages of Destruction. He's also a professor at Yale University. Um, He claimed in The Wages of Destruction that Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union was the result of his paranoia about the land-starved backwardness of German agriculture as contrasted with the raw material and land resources of both America's vast continent and the British Empire. He thought that in order for Germany to compete with American Britain, it needed to have access to all of those things as well. 
And he thought, well, Russia's got all of that. Let's go yeah, take theirs. Right, right over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, according to Tooze, America's frontier expansion that obliterated the native Indians provided mm-hmm. Hitler with a precedent which he often cited. Right, in Mein Kampf. Yep, he certainly did. He said, look, you know, it's okay for America to go and kill their native population to take their land, to exploit it for uh, commercial purposes. Why is it wrong for the German farmers to go and take the land of their neighbours? And his answer was, it's not. There's nothing wrong with it. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, the economic causes of World War II could be the subject of an entire podcast, if only... Mm -hmm. If only mm-hmm. one of us did a podcast on World War Two. Okay, hold on, let me write this down. Do podcast World War Two. Okay, got it. How long have I known you, Ray? Two and a half years. And how? In all that time, uh-huh. how many times have you invited me to be a guest on your World War Two show? Including tonight. Yeah, including tonight. Uh, zero. Zero. And oh, why uh, is that? Why is that, Ray? Oh, uh, why is? Um. Hold on, this is not a mute. Oh, fuck. Too late. Um, no, I don't know. I don't really have guests on, except for when I'm interviewing writers and stuff like that. So don't be offended. I equally don't trust or hate everyone. Equally. <sighs> Just struck you me like over to... the weekend. I was like, well, hold on a second. Why hasn't Ray ever invited me on his show as a guest? The fuck? I don't. I don't. Hmm. Two yeah. guests. I'm sorry. Mm, okay. Okay. I feel like I've hurt you. I can I can speak in a monotone as well if that's <laughs> what's required to be on the show. You're overqualified. I cra- you I are overqualified. Up, I cranked up your recent episode of World War Two the other day. I was listening to it. Did it help you sleep? I get I get to read the next verse in 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 Ray's World War Two style. <laughs> Remember how we talked in a previous episode about the Atlantic Charter meetings between Roosevelt and Churchill in 1941 and how Roosevelt wanted to open up the British bloc. <laughs> you have, yeah, yeah. You have two notes. You have, you have B and B sharp <laughs> is your <laughs> vocal range in that show. We used to be such good friends. Oh. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Okay, yeah, so the Atlantic Charter meetings between Roosevelt and Churchill back in 41. By the way, I'll stop now. Do you want to say anything else apart from making up excuses while you haven't had me on your show? Uh, Economics, World War II, anything you want to comment on there? Let's see here. Um, I, I, would, I would be a little hesitant to declare how much how much economics was important to Hitler. It was. It certainly was important to all his ministers, especially Goering, who was developing his own freaking empire. Every time they went anywhere, he took a lot of shit. Um, for Hitler, a lot of it was race and revenge and hatred and stuff like that. But he easily, easily recognized the importance of economics because someone had to pay for the rearmament of uh, his his country because he knew he wanted to go to war the entire time. That was a foregone conclusion. Someone had to pay for it, and sadly, it was going to be the neighboring countries around him. So, like like Philip II, Alexander the Great's father, he had a rolling economy. 
build up an army, take a country, take the resources, build up your army again, go to the next country. Uh, but but he certainly did recognize that someone had to pay the bill, the butcher's bill, uh, before he could go to war. Yeah, but I think it's more than that. I think there's an understanding that in order to survive in a belligerent world, you need to be economically powerful. You need to be able to go toe-to-toe economically with these other major powers around the world. And uh, Germany just wasn't in a position to do that in 1933. And he eventually went loony. He went the rest of the way loony, you know, by early 44. So, Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I'm not suggesting that uh, building up the economic power of Germany, Japan and Italy was the only cause of these countries. There were race issues and all of that kind of stuff definitely involved. But uh, race and revenge, but building their countries into uh, economic uh, independence or self-sufficiency to be able to compete in the global markets was a very large factor. Yeah, very vital. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, I want to get back to these these meetings of Churchill and Roosevelt just as we wrap up in... um, uh, uh, 1941. You know, Roosevelt said that he wanted to open up the British trading bloc, but at the same time, the US was promising France that they could keep their trading bloc. The French mm. obviously still had the remnants of their empire. Right. Um, two weeks before the Atlantic Charter meeting, the US acting Secretary of State, Sumner Wells, assured the French government that they could keep their empire intact after the war. So on one hand, you've got Roosevelt saying to Churchill, well, you know, we'll help you, but then, we, you know, you need to open up. On the other hand, they're saying to the French, yeah, but you can keep your empire. They're, they're <laughs> saying, we believe in the self-determinations of all peoples, except the people that are part of the French empire, because, yeah, come on, they're French. Um, they probably felt sorry for them because they'd already lost their uh, their homeland. They gave, us the, they gave us the Statue of Liberty. Come on, we yeah, owe them at least that. Uh, Wells wrote, the U.S. government, mindful of its traditional friendship for France, has deeply sympathized with the desire of the French people to maintain their territories and to preserve them intact. But Deeply sympathized with the desire of the French people to maintain their territories. Yeah, which was basically the land of other people that you were oppressing and taking their natural resources. There's a part of me that can't help but think, look, look, You've lost Paris, you've lost uh, the vast majority of your country, but you still have your empire around the world, and you still got your freedom fighters and Charles de Gaulle and stuff like that. So a part of me can't help but think they were willing to tell them anything they could to keep at least those people fighting to maybe join up with the British or to harass the Germans. You never know the truth, but yeah, to be able to say that, to put that down in writing while you're telling Britain to break up there is very disingenuous. Hmm. And, you know, you're complaining about all these other countries wanting to build empires because, no, we believe in the rights of self-determination. The Department of Defense History of Vietnam, a.k.a. the Pentagon Papers, noted that in the Atlantic Charter and other pronouncements, the U.S. proclaimed support for national self-determination and independence. But it also says early in the war, we repeatedly expressed or implied to the French an intention to restore to France its overseas empire after the war. Mm. In late 1942, Roosevelt personally assured the French general Henri Garat, it is thoroughly understood that French sovereignty will be re-established as soon as possible Mm. 
through all the territory, metropolitan or colonial over which flew the French flag in 1939. That's pretty fucked up because, I, I mean, I, I see what, what America's saying. You know what? When we go in, when we win this war, we're going to set the clock back to 1939 when the war started. I, I get that. But even at that moment, the British and the French flags flew over so many other countries or populations that weren't uh, with them. They were being oppressed. So again, that's that's just pretty fucked up because those people are going to want freedom, just like everybody wants to be free of Hitlerism. So again, just bullshit. But everybody's taking care of their friends, and that's the way international politics work. Well, my point is that it's all about uh, how well you're able to trade with that empire. Mm-hmm. If it's an if it's an empire that you're not going to be able to trade with, then it's an evil empire. If it's an empire that is. <laughs> Open to trading with your you and your businesses. Then that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Now, we we don't care if you're oppressing your people. And this 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 goes back a, a long long way. I mean this this yeah. was their official policy in not, in May 1945. So pretty much after the war has pretty much been done right. concluded. Truman um, assured the French that he did not question their sovereignty over Indochina. Right. Um, and then, of course, you know, we know, and we'll get into it as the series goes, the whole Vietnamese War was um, partially a result, a large part of a result of the desire for the uh, for Vietnamese who wanted independence. And uh, mm-hmm. and the U.S. intervened to, to stop them getting their independence from France. Um, mm. the, the United States actually, in later in 1945, urged China... Uh, to be put in charge of the northern part of Indochina and then to turn it over to the French. Oh, that's messed up. Yeah. Um, Despite, obviously, this desire on behalf of the Vietnamese for independence. So Roosevelt's rhetoric about self-determination for backward countries wasn't really a hard and fast policy of the US. They were happy to let some backward countries remain under the thumb of imperialism, just depending on, you know, how open door those countries were. It's all about trade, baby. Yes, it is. Well, that's pretty much where we should wrap it up, I guess. Uh, God damn, we're only halfway through our notes for (laughs) these episodes. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No, just looking forward to the interview this weekend. That's, that's going to be really cool. Is that our first Cold War interview? First Cold War interview with nice. uh, Secretary of State Doug LaFollette. Nice way nice. to kick it off. Yeah. Um, one more review before we uh, go. Uh, Fire Silk of the USA. I love these guys, Fire Silk <laughs> says. I started listening to the free version of this podcast because A, I've been watching the Americans and wanted to learn more about the Cold War and B, because I like the Australian guy's accent. Yeah, pretty cool. I bought... Uh, I should crank it up then. G'day. G'day. <laughs> hey, Fire Silk, this is just for you, love. G'day. That's not a knife. This is a knife. Hope you come down under, throw another shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> Uh, Fire Silk goes on. I hope Fire Silk's a woman. Otherwise, that just sounded very funny for a a guy. (laughs) I bought a subscription. I never pay for podcasts because I like the content and because I like the Australian guy's accent. 
Cool. Cam and Ray do a great job making the topic interesting. I'm really excited about the upcoming episodes. I subscribe to quite a few podcasts, but this one is my favourite by far. Aww. Thank you, Fire Silk. Oh, yeah, thank um, you. Shoot, shoot us an email, email at acoldwar.com with your name and address, and we will send you a little token of our appreciation. Absolutely. So, uh, based on the way we've gone today, I'd say we've got another episode left on doing economics. Yeah, one more. And then um, we're going to start talking about Stalin and the purges. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, what else have we got coming up? What's in twelve and fourteen? Uh, then we oh, start, yeah. Oh, I was going to say the the, the uh, fucking Molotov Ribbentrop yeah, Pact, non-aggression pact. Yep, yep. Non-aggression pact between Stalin and Hitler, mm-hmm. uh, and that leads to the Grand Alliance uh, between the US, the UK, the USSR, and that will lead us down through the big stretch into. Tehran conference, and uh, finally we will get to the Yalta conference Woo! at some point. But kick this, kick this thing off. Economics, kids. It's important yes. to understand the role of economics in why we go to war. More about that, uh, uh, well, probably not next episode, which will be Douglas Follett, but maybe the episode <laughs> right. after that. Yeah, it's not sexy, but it's necessary, and it does make the world go round. Not love. Money makes the world go round, the world go round, the world go round. Cabaret, man. All right. Thank you, buddy. Bye. Take care. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.